We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Welcome back to another episode of Weird Distractions Podcast, a weekly podcast where I, your host Alex, rotate in discussing true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you, and more than likely, what your local plumber would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week, we are celebrating Halloween, and I decided to talk about a little bit of a true crime slash paranormal slash folklore tale out of Idaho. But before we dive into the case, I do have a little bit of housekeeping I need to go over, and I need to tell you what I need a distraction from. As always, if you are in need of a distraction and want me to talk about it on air, feel free to shoot me a message on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and I might just read it on an upcoming episode. In terms of housekeeping, I did want to give a little bit of a heads up that Listener Distractions is tentatively coming back in November. If you want to hear your weird stories of paranormal encounters, true crime, and more, email me at weirddistractionspodcast.outlook.com. I'm always looking for listener stories. As well, just an update, if you do look into my resources in the episode show notes, depending on whether a case or a topic I'm covering has multiple resources, I will be uploading them to a Google Doc where you can find specific resources for specific episodes. I'm doing this because basically our network has switched podcast platforms and the podcast platform that we have moved to has a very limited amount of characters that you can put in for an episode description. If you do come across this Google Doc, which once again, it will be in the show notes and you're having issues viewing it, please send me an email at weirddistractionspodcast.outlook.com and I will try my very best in order to hopefully fix whatever is going on. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a big Google Doc person, so I hope I did it right. But if I'm if I if I didn't, let me know. In terms of my need for a distraction this week, I would have to say I need a distraction from the fact that I just found out Leslie Jordan died, which breaks my little heart. For those who don't know who Leslie Jordan was, they were an actor. I fell in love with I fell in love with Leslie Jordan through RuPaul's Drag Race and through American Horror Story. And honestly, I just feel as if it's such a loss in terms of I don't know, just you get used to seeing people on screen as you get older and I think he was just one of those people that I'd only see him from time to time and every time he was on screen I don't know he just made me laugh he just made me smile I know he's a huge queer icon so for anyone else that's also kind of in the same boat as me that is very saddened to hear this news just know that you're not alone and you know hopefully he's resting in peace Now that I've gone over housekeeping and my need for distraction, let's just get into this week's episode. So all month long, I have discussed some creepy, weird, and haunting topics to celebrate Halloween. Even though I feel like I haven't really done as much as I could to celebrate Halloween, I've at least tried to do it over here on the show. To cap off the month of all things spooky, I originally wanted to discuss the history of Devil's Night, which seems fitting given this episode comes out on October 30th, which is Devil's Night. But to be frank, I tried to get into the research for it, and I found it hard to kind of keep my focus, and because of that, 
I'm going to put that topic back on the shelf for another year and for another distraction. So I looked online for a new topic and stumbled upon a tragic yet terrifying tale from Boise, Idaho. As you may have been able to tell by the title of the episode, I will be discussing the murder of Preston Murr at his former home, which seemingly is now referred to as the Boise Murder House. This episode may sound like another true crime episode, but there is a paranormal twist, as mentioned. Due to potential coarse language, disturbing adult themes, and other topics that could be discussed today, listener discretion is advised. Based on what I gathered from my research, Preston Adam Murr was born on September 18th of 1965 in Santa Clara, California, within the United States. Our story with Preston begins in June of 1987. At some point, he relocates to Boise, Idaho, unsure if he moved out there on his own or what led him to Idaho from the West Coast. But what I can state is that he was about 21 years old in 1987, and he lived at 805 West Linden Street in Boise. The home is reported to be 2,560 square feet, and sources such as Zillow noted it was built in 1910. On June 29th of 1987, court documents claim that Preston attended a funeral in town. After the funeral, Preston, along with a reported small group of folks who also attended the funeral, had some drinks. Not sure where, but hey, maybe they went to a pub after or went to a friend's house. It's not really clear. The group supposedly became intoxicated and belligerent, with some accounts claiming that Preston actually got into a fight with two other men. Boise police were called to the scene where Preston and the two other unnamed men were cited for disorderly conduct. After receiving the citation, I assume that the parties went on their separate ways, perhaps to sober up from the fight. Later that evening, Preston allegedly called the police from his sister's apartment where he was at with his girlfriend. Preston had alleged to officials that someone had called him and threatened to kill him. Now, I'm not sure if this call was maybe from the two people that he was fighting with before or whatnot. It details aren't very clear. But what we do know is that at some point, Preston decides to do his own investigating. That's when he called 37-year-old Daniel Edward Rogers, which accounts claim they knew each other, but they don't really put like a friendship label on it. So I'm not sure if they were friends, acquaintances, or what they exactly were. You don't really need to put a label on it, but it would help me understand the situation a little better. But Nonetheless, it's neither here nor there. At some point, Preston leaves his sister's apartment and meets up with Daniel along with 31-year-old Darren Jim Cox. The three met up at a Circle K store on Boise Avenue, where reports claim that Preston would join Darren and Daniel in Daniel's car and the three of them would drive back to Preston's sister's apartment. Once back at the apartment, the three allegedly discussed the threatening phone call that Preston had received as well as the whereabouts of guns that had been supposedly stolen from Daniel. It kind of sounds as if Daniel, Darren, and Preston got together basically to kind of figure out who was messing with them. I mean, Preston was getting threatening phone calls. Daniel had his guns stolen. God knows what Darren was going through at this time, but that's kind of the vibe I'm getting from the situation. So based on the reported timeline I came across online, the three identified men then left 
Preston's sister's apartment to go to Preston's home, once again located at 805 West Linden Street. But then they went out again to check out another apartment where Daniel thought his stolen guns may have been held at. Not sure if they found the guns, not sure what happened, but we do know that they went to Preston's from his sister's house, left again to go to apartment, and then at some point they go back to Preston's. It's it's a very long night for these three. But once they got back to Preston's, things seemed go downhill. And to elaborate further, I'm going to directly quote from the case text website, i.e. the court documents, and just going to give a little bit of a trigger warning for this as we discuss acts of violence that can be considered graphic. Quote, the trio, being Darren, Daniel, and Preston, returned to 805 Linden Street. Around midnight, an altercation broke out and Preston was shot in the shoulder with a .357 Magnum handgun. Preston ran out of the house and in to the neighborhood in an attempt to escape. While trying to flee his attacker, Preston attempted to enter the home of a neighbor. The neighbor heard pounding at his door and someone screaming, let go of me. Then he heard an anguished yell. Peeking out the window, the neighbor saw someone chasing Preston. Preston was finally apprehended by his assailant and taken back into the house at 805 Linden Street. Thereafter, Preston was fatally shot in the back of the head with a .357 Magnum bullet to the brain, end quote. Once back in the home, Daniel and Darren allegedly cut Preston's body into pieces with an axe and knives before being placed into plastic bags. Preston's bagged remains were then put into a trunk of a brown Grand Prix automobile belonging to Daniel's wife, Catherine. In the early morning hours of June 30th, Darren and Daniel took the Grand Prix with Preston's remains and drove to an area near Weiser, Idaho, on the Idaho-Oregon border. Most of Preston's remains were thrown into the Brownlee Reservoir, which, if my Google Map search is right, may be about two hours and 30 minutes north of his home. I imagine that Daniel and Darren may have hoped that the remains of Preston would sink to the bottom, but that wasn't necessarily the case. According to the case law website, parts of Preston's remains that wouldn't sink were eventually taken to a nearby bluff. The materials used for the crew disregard of Preston's body, being plastic bags, bloody gloves, and other clothing were reportedly discarded in a dumpster behind a convenience store in Meridian, Idaho. Based on what I read online, a neighbor of Preston's witness up brown sedan stopped in the street next to his house. This same neighbor allegedly called the police, asking them to come out and investigate the reported blood he found on his front screen door. Maybe he felt suspicious in noticing the brown sedan in his neighborhood. Plus, you know, having blood on your screen door that isn't yours is kind of cause for a red flag. Coincidentally, this was supposedly the exact same neighborhood that had called the evening before when Preston had allegedly knocked on his door, pleading for help. When police did arrive to the scene, they noticed that there was blood everywhere. Not just that neighbor's house, but on other houses as well within the neighborhood. Due to the volume of blood witnessed, backup was reportedly called, and it sounds as if a large section of the neighborhood was closed off to investigate. After knocking on doors, talking to neighbors, and obtaining a search warrant, police entered Preston's home. There, police realized that they found their hub point. In direct quote to describe the scene further from the case law website, quote, The officers found blood in the house, particularly in the basement. Drugs and money were also found and seized. They discovered a bullet fragment inside a clothes dryer and a bullet hole in a door at the top of the basement stairs. Eventually, they located a handgun belonging to Daniel Rogers in the bottom of a speaker stand or cabinet, end quote. 
This quote kind of makes me wonder if Daniel just had multiple guns or maybe he found the guns he had lost before. I don't know. It just it's interesting that he left his gun at Preston's house after apparently having guns stolen from him. It just I don't know. Man's man's got to get a better handle on his guns. Let's just put it that way. When there was no body found in the basement of Preston's home, I can imagine police knew that they would need to look elsewhere to try and patch this story together. Daniel and his wife would be arrested on June 30th, but with substance-related charges. The following days seemed to paint the story we now know today of Preston's murder. Preston's remains were found along the banks of the reservoir, and at some point, police were led to Darren Cox. Darren and Daniel are both tied to Preston's murder, in which Darren spoke to police, painting the crimes to be at the hands of Daniel. Until the trial, Daniel wouldn't admit that he was even at Preston's house the evening of Preston's death. Speaking of the trial, court records share that Daniel had stated he had allegedly tried to break up a knife fight which occurred in the basement between Preston and Darren. Unsure as to what the fight was over specifically, however, some resources I came across noted it may have been over cash and substances, but cannot say that for fact, of course. Daniel then testified that Preston suddenly came at him with a knife and he fired a warning shot in self-defense. But this warning shot allegedly hit Preston in the shoulder as opposed to just scaring him. Things would further escalate based on Daniel's alleged accounts, where he painted Darren being responsible for shooting Preston with a fatal shot. Court reports further state that Daniel had admitted he had helped clean up and dispose of the evidence, but did not partake in the dismembering of Preston. Both Darren and Daniel were painting each other as the mastermind behind Preston's tragic and unnecessary murder. It would be Daniel, however, that would be sentenced to life in prison for the first-degree murder of Preston, which, based on the website Inmate Aid, it seems as if he's still in prison in Boise to this day. Daniel apparently tried to appeal his conviction in, I believe, 1990. However, the court concluded, quote, We hold that Roger's conviction for the murder in the first degree was proper and fixed life sentence was reasonable in light of the circumstance of the case. Accordingly, we affirm the judgment of conviction, including the sentence. I did want to mention that Daniel and Catherine, being Daniel's wife, allegedly were foster parents at one point prior to Preston's murder. Of course, once Daniel was convicted, that opportunity was removed. Daniel also tried to apply for parole back in 2005, but he was denied. Darren, on the other hand, reportedly only spent six years in jail for his role in the incident, and in one article I did come across, it stated that Darren was also charged with first-degree murder. Darren's court documents were a bit harder to find, and to be honest, I got the vibe that because Darren was willing to speak to police from the get-go, he was perhaps given a little bit more leeway in comparison to Daniel. Moving away from discussing Darren and Daniel, I did want to acknowledge a little bit more, more about Preston. So Preston's murder really devastated Boise. I came across depictions of the crime that pointed to a community being absolutely rocked by such a graphic and devastating murder, plus the loss of such a young soul. Preston would eventually be buried in the Rose Hill Cemetery in Idaho Falls, almost four hours east of his home. Speaking of his home, I did want to shift focus from the murder of Preston and chat about the home and what took place after Preston's tragic death. It appears as though the home has had multiple owners since 1987. According to the website Lanier State, several people rented out the home during the 90s and the house even spent time as a Boise State University frat house in the 2000s. I did come across a website that dismissed the Boise State University frat house narrative, so if you're a local and know more, let me know. By all the documentation I came across, it seems like now the home may be owned by a private owner. 
Some sources, such as the Bakersfield Now website, have indicated this person may be related to Daniel Rogers by past marriage. Moving away from ownership, the house does seem to have a history of paranormal accounts and folklore associated with it, as mentioned earlier. For example, according to a local wiki page on the house, there have been legends surrounding the home ranging from a murderer who killed and dismembered numerous people in the house to frat members from the Boise State University telling of blood dripping from the basement walls out of nowhere. Other legends have included accounts of locals seeing a ghostly apparition of a woman in 19th century clothes staring out the front window at night. Now, on the 107.9 Light website written by Michelle Hart, there were a couple of submitted stories from folks who had been near or in Preston's former home. Once again, now seemingly referred to as the Boise Murder House. I'm going to read two of the stories on the website, which if you want to check out the others, Michelle's write-up will be posted in today's resources. The first one is from Joe W. And Joe W. wrote, I lived in the upstairs for about two semesters while I attended BSU about 12 years ago. We had a bunch of friends living with us. Oftentimes, with all the foot traffic, we would spill out onto the front porch. In the summer, we made a fire pit out front and would have people sitting around the campfire until very early in the morning the next day. I'm sure that's where the fraternity comes up. The basement was creepy and it had a weird feel. We would take people down there to scare them. We had heard the same story. I never saw any ghosts, but you could tell something wasn't right. It's a fun place to stay for a bit. And lastly, Rachel R. wrote, My family almost bought this house back in 2000. I remember going to look at it and doing a walkthrough and just being so creeped out by being in the home. It looked like it had been abandoned and the basement was by far the creepiest part. I can remember exactly what it looked like and get anxious thinking about it to this day. I couldn't find any other accounts of paranormal encounters or anything to that nature. So if you're tuning in and you know of a story, send it my way, of course. To me, I think what has happened is that Preston's unfortunate murder has now left the house with such a weird narrative where people are kind of passing the story from generation to generation, but it's kind of like a game of broken telephone, so to speak. And I think with that, anywhere that has had any kind of tragic event take place always seems to kind of manifest other weird phenomena with it, whether it's true phenomena that is actually being witnessed or just, you know, hearsay. Moving forward, let's summarize this week's distraction. Now, before people get all hyped up about going to look at this place, I just want to state that I do not condone doing so. Don't invade someone's privacy just trying to get a sneak peek. I know that's a bit hypocritical because I'm talking about the house and in such I'm invading on someone's privacy and discussing this. I do acknowledge that as a podcaster in the genre I am in, I do this often. But I also hope it comes across to you, listener, that I'm doing this to enlighten folks of various macabre historical pieces, some of which are very true and did for a fact happen, and others, well, as we know, maybe not so much. And as you have may have already guessed it after almost 134 episodes of this podcast, I do this by means of what is considered, you know, a weird distraction because that's, well, the intention of the show. I just want to highlight in particular that I don't want folks tuning in to bother whomever is living there now. 
Whether that murder house in Boise, Idaho is haunted by ghosts or rather by the history of a horrific crime, I will leave that up for debate. Perhaps it's just an eerie reminder that we never know the full history of a home and never truly know what's lurking behind closed doors. With that said, have a spooky, safe, and weirdly satisfying Halloween. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming the show on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. This helps the show out for free by letting others know that it's worth listening to. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an update is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and TikTok. If you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month, why not join one of the two tiers over on Patreon? Each month you get exclusive content such as bonus episodes and series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early access to the regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Sissy, Shadow, Courtney, and Cheryl. I love you all and appreciate your ongoing support of Weird Distractions. If you're unable to support the show on a monthly basis, but still want to support it maybe as a one-time donation, check out the show's merch over on Redbubble or sign up for a one-time donation over on Buy Me A Coffee. Lastly, I want to hear from you. As some longtime listeners may recall, Christy and I released two listener story-based episodes called Listener Distractions. I'd love to keep doing this series and hear all of your weird tales of ghostly encounters, unexplainable events, and too close to home true crime stories. You can email me your tales at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections that need to be made after today's episode, let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye. Oh.